Section 10 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Prince Metternich, Part 3. After the final dethronement of Napoleon, the policy of Metternich with reference to foreign powers was pacific. He had seen enough of war, and it had no charm for him. War had brought Germany to the verge of political ruin. All his efforts as Chancellor were directed to the preservation of peace and the balance of power among all nations. At the close of the great European struggle, the finances of all the German states were alike disordered, and their industries paralyzed. Compared with France and England, Germany was poor, and wages for all kinds of labor were small. It became Metternich's aim to develop the material resources of the empire, which could be best done in time of peace. Austria, accordingly, took part in no international contest for fifty years, except to preserve her own territories. Metternich did not seem to be ambitious of further territorial aggrandizement for his country. It required all his talents to preserve what she had. Indeed, the preservation of the status quo everywhere was his desire, without change and without progress. He was a conservative, like the English Lord Eldon, who supported established institutions because they were established, and any movement or any ideas which interrupted the order of things were hateful to him, especially agitations for greater political liberty. A constitutional government was his abhorrence. Hence the policy of Metternich's home rule was fatal to all expansion, to all emancipating movements, to all progress, to everything which looked like popular liberty. Men might smoke, drink beer, attend concerts and theatres, amuse themselves in any way they pleased, but they should not congregate together to discuss political questions, they should not form clubs or societies with political intent of any kind, they should not even read agitating tracts and books. He could not help their thinking, but they should not criticize his government. They should be taught in schools directed by Roman Catholic priests, who were good classical scholars, good mathematicians, but who knew but little and cared less about the theories of political economy, or even history, unless modified to suit religious bigots of the medieval type. He maintained that men should be contented with the sphere in which they were born, that discontent was no better than rebellion against providence, that any change would be for the worse. He had no liking for universities, in which were fomented liberal ideas, and those professors who sought to disturb the order of things, or teach new ideas, anything to make young scholars think upon anything but ordinary duties, were silenced or discharged or banished. The word rights was an abomination to him. Men, he thought, had no rights, only duties. He disliked the press more than he did the universities. It was his impression that it was antagonistic to all existing governments. Hence, he fettered the press with restrictions and confined it to details of little importance. He would allow no comments which unsettled the minds of readers. In no country was the censorship of the press more inexorable than in Austria and its dependent states. All that spies and a secret police and priests could do to ferret out associations which had in view a greater liberty was done. All that soldiers could do to suppress popular insurrection was effected, and all in the name of religion since he looked upon free inquiry as logically leading to skepticism, and skepticism to infidelity, and infidelity to revolution. In the Catholic sense, Metternich was a religious man, since he recognized in the Roman Catholic Church the conservation of all that is valuable in society, in government, and even in civilization. He brought Catholics to his aid in cementing political despotism, for absolutism and Catholicism, as Sir James Stephen so well said, are but convertible terms. 
Accordingly, he brought back the Jesuits and restored them to their ancient power and wealth. He formed the strictest union with the Pope. He rewarded ecclesiastics and honored the great dignitaries of the established church as his most efficient and trusted lieutenants in the war he waged on human liberty. But I must allude to some of the things which gave this great man trouble. Of course, nothing worried him so much as popular insurrections, since they endangered the throne and opposed the cherished ends of his life. As early as 1817, what he called sects disturbed Central Europe. These were a class of people who resembled the Methodists of England and the followers of Madame von Krudener in Russia, generally mystics in religion, who practiced the greatest self-denial in this world to make sure of the promises of the next. The Kingdom of Württemberg, the Grand Duchy of Baden, and Suabia were filled with these people, perfectly harmless politically, yet with views which Metternich considered an innovation to be stifled in the beginning. So, of Bible societies, he was opposed to these as furnishing a class of subjects for discussion which brought up to his mind the old dissertations on the rights of man. The Catholic Church, he writes to Count Nesselrode, the Russian minister, does not encourage the universal reading of the Bible, which should be confined to persons who are calm and enlightened. But he goes on to say that he himself at forty-five reads daily one or two chapters and finds new beauties in them, while at the age of twenty he was a skeptic and found it difficult not to think that the family of Lot was unworthy to be saved, Noah unworthy to have lived, Saul a great criminal, and David a terrible man. They had tried to understand everything, but that now he accepts everything without cavil or criticism. Truly, a Catholic might say, see the glorious peace and repose which our faith brings to the most intellectual of men. In 1819 an event occurred of no great importance in itself, but which was made the excuse for increased stringency in the suppression of liberal sentiments throughout Germany. This was the assassination of von Kotzebue, the dramatic author, at Mannheim, at the hands of a fanatic by the name of Sand. Kotzebue had some employment under the Russian government, and was supposed to be a propagandist of the views of the Tsar, who had lately become exceedingly hostile to all emancipating movements. In the early part of his reign, Alexander was called a Jacobin by Metternich, who despised his philanthropical and sentimental theories, and his energetic labors in behalf of literature, educational institutions, freer political conditions, etc. But when Napoleon was sent to St. Helena, the Russian ruler, wearied with great events and dreading revolutionary tendencies, changed his opinions, and was now leagued with the King of Prussia and the Emperor of Austria in supporting the most stringent measures against all reformers. Sand was a theological student in the University of Jena, who thought he was doing God's service by removing from the earth with his assassin's dagger a vile wretch employed by the Russian tyrant to propagate views which mocked the loftiest aspirations of mankind. The murder of Kotzebue created an immense sensation throughout Europe, and was followed by increased rigor on the part of all despotic governments in muzzling the press, in the suppression of public meetings of every sort, and especially in expelling from the universities both students and professors who were known or even supposed to entertain liberal ideas. Metternich even went so far as to write a letter to the King of Prussia urging him to disband the gymnasia as hotbeds of mischief. His influence on this monarch was still further seen in dissuading him to withhold the constitution promised his subjects during the War of Liberation. He regarded the meeting of a general representation of the nation as scarcely less evil than democratic violence, and his hatred of constitutional checks on a king was as great as of intellectual independence in a professor at a gymnasium. 
universities and constituent assemblies to him were equally fatal to undisturbed peace and stability in government in the midst of these efforts to suppress throughout germany all agitating political ideas and movements the news arrived of the revolution in naples july eighteen twenty affected by the carbonari by which the king was compelled to restore the constitution of eighteen thirteen or abdicate metternich lost no time in assembling the monarchs of austria prussia and russia with their principal ministers to a conference or congress at trapau with a view of putting down the insurrection by armed intervention the result is well known the armies of austria and russia one hundred seventy thousand men restored the neapolitan tyrant to his throne while he on his part revoked the constitution he had sworn to defend and affairs at naples became worse than they were before in no country in the world was there a more execrable despotism than that exercised by the bourbon ferdinand the prisons were filled with political prisoners and these prisons were filthy without ventilation so noisome and pestilential that even physicians dared not enter them while the wretched prisoners mostly men of culture chained to the most abandoned and desperate murderers and thieves dragged out their weary lives without trial and without hope and this was what the king supported and endorsed by metternich considered good government to be the following year saw an insurrection at piedmont when the patriotic party hoped to throw all northern italy upon the rear of the austrians but which resulted as will be treated elsewhere in a sad collapse the victory of absolutism in italy was complete and all people seeking their liberties became the object of attack from the three great powers who obeyed the suggestions of the austrian chancellor now unquestionably the most prominent figure in european politics he had not only suppressed liberty in the country which he directly governed but he had united austria prussia and russia in a war against the liberties of europe and this under the guise of religion itself metternich now thought he had earned a vacation and in the fall of eighteen twenty one he made a visit to hanover he had previously visited italy with the usual experience of cultivated germans unbounded admiration for its works of art and sunny skies and historical monuments he was as enthusiastic as madame de stael over st peter's and the pantheon in his private letters to his wife and children so simple so frank so childlike in his enjoyment no one would suppose he was the arch and cruel enemy of all progress with monarchs for his lieutenants and governors for his slaves his journey to hanover was a triumphant procession the king george the fourth embraced him with that tenderness which is usual with monarchs when they meet one another and in the fulsomeness of his praise compared him to all the great men of antiquity and of modern times caesar cato gustavus adolphus marlborough pitt wellington and the whole catalogue of heroes on his return journey to vienna metternich stopped to rest himself a while at johannesburg the magnificent estate on the rhine which the emperor had given him near where he was born and where he had stored away forty huge casks of his own vintage worth six hundred ducats a cask for the use of monarchs and great nobles alone from thence he proceeded to frankfurt a beautiful but to him a horrible town i suppose because it was partially free and while there he took occasion to visit five universities at all of which he was received as a sort of deity the students following his carriage with uncovered heads and with cheers and shouts curious to see what sort of a man it was who had so easily suppressed revolution in italy and who ruled germany with such an iron hand 
and yet while metternich so completely extinguished the fires of liberty in the countries which he governed he was doomed to see how hopeless it was to do the same in other lands by mere diplomatic intrigues in eighteen twenty two the spanish revolution broke out and a year after came the greek revolution with all its complications ending in a war between russia and turkey from this he stood aloof since if he helped the turks to put down insurrection he would offend the emperor alexander thus far his best ally and commit austria to a war from which he shrank it was his policy to preserve his country from entangling wars it was as much as he could do to preserve order and law in the various states of germany at the cost of all intellectual progress but he watched the developments of liberty in other parts of europe with the keenest interest and his correspondence with different potentates whether monarchs or their ministers is very voluminous and was directed to the support of absolutism in which alone he saw hope for europe the liberal views of the english canning gave metternich both solicitude and disgust and he did all he could to undermine the influence of capo d'illustrious the greek diplomatist with his imperial master the czar he hated any man who was politically enlightened and destroyed him if he could the event in his long reign which most perplexed him and gave him the greatest solicitude was the revolution in france in eighteen thirty which unseated the bourbons and established the constitutional government of louis philippe and this was followed by the insurrection of the netherlands revolts in the german states and the polish revolution within the year eighteen thirty began a new era in european politics a period of reform not always successful but enough to show that the spirit of innovation could no longer be suppressed that the subterranean fires of liberty would burst forth when least expected and overthrow the strongest thrones but amid all the reforms which took place in england in france in belgium in piedmont austria remained stationary so cemented was the power of metternich so overwhelming was his influence the one central figure in germany for eighteen years longer in eighteen thirty five the emperor francis died recommending to his son and successor ferdinand to lean on the powerful arm of the chancellor and continue him in great offices nor was it until the outbreak in vienna in eighteen forty eight when emperor and minister alike fled from the capital that the official career of metternich closed and he finally retired to his estates at johannesburg to spend his few declining years in leisure and peace for forty years metternich had borne the chief burdens of the state for forty years his word was the law of germany for forty years all the cabinets of continental europe were guided more or less by his advice and his advice from first to last was uniform to put down popular movements and uphold absolutism at any cost and severely punish all people of whatever rank or character who tempted the oppressed to shake off their fetters or who dared to give expression to emancipating ideas even in the halls of universities in view of the execrable tyranny both political and religious which metternich succeeded in establishing for thirty years it is natural for an ordinary person to look upon him as a monster hard cruel unscrupulous haughty gloomy a sort of wallenstein or strafford to be held in abhorrence a man to be assassinated as the enemy of mankind but metternich was nothing of the sort as a man in all his private relations he was amiable gentle and kind to everybody and greatly revered by domestic servants and public functionaries by his imperial master he was treated as a brother or friend rather than as a minister while on his part he never presumed on any liberties and seemed simply to obey the orders of his sovereign orders which he himself suggested with infinite tact and politeness 
unlike stein and bismarck who were overbearing and rude even in the presence of the sovereign in court metternich had better manners and more self-control indeed he was the model of a gentleman wherever he went he was the hardest worked man in the empire and he worked from the stimulus of what he conceived to be his duty and for the welfare of the country as he understood it he was the hardest worked man in the empire and he worked from the stimulus of what he conceived to be his duty and for the welfare of the country as he understood it though one of the richest men in austria and of the highest social rank he lived in frugal simplicity despising pomp and extravagance alike his highest enjoyment outside the society of his family was music the whole realm of art was his delight but he loved nature even more than art he enjoyed greatly the repose of his own library an apartment eighteen feet high and containing fifteen thousand volumes the only unamiable thing about metternich was his fear of being bored he maintained that it was impossible to find over six interesting men in any company whatever with people whom he trusted he was unusually frank and free-spoken with diplomatists he wore a mask and made it a point to conceal his thoughts he deceived even napoleon no one could penetrate his intentions under a smooth and placid countenance unruffled and calm on all occasions he practiced when he pleased the profoundest dissimulation and he dissimulated by telling the truth oftener than by concealing it he knew what the ars salar artem meant when he could find leisure he was fond of traveling especially in italy but he hated and avoided the discomforts of travel if he made distant journeys he traveled luxuriously and wherever he went he was received with the greatest honors at rome the pope treated him as a sovereign the czar alexander commanded his magnates to give him the same deference that they gave to himself while the world regarded metternich as the most fortunate of men he yet had many sorrows and afflictions which saddened his life he lost two wives and three of his children to all of whom he was devotedly attached yet bore the loss with christian resignation he found relief in work and in his duties there were no scandals in his private life he professed and seemed to feel the greatest reverence for religion in the form which had been taught him he detested vulgarity in every shape as he did ordinary vices from which he was free he was self-conscious and loved attention and honors but was not a slave to them like most german officials nothing could be more tender and affectionate than his letters to his mother to his wife and to his daughters his father he treated with supreme reverence no public man ever gave more dignity to domestic pleasures the truest friends of my life said he are my family and my master and to each he was equally devoted on the death of his second wife in eighteen twenty nine he writes i feel this misfortune most deeply i have lost everything for the remainder of my days the other world is daily more and more peopled with beings to whom I am united by the closest ties of affection. I too shall take my place there, and I shall disengage myself from this life with all the less regret. My only relief is in work. I am at my desk by nine in the morning. I leave it at five, and return to it at half-past six, and work till half-past ten, when I receive visitors till midnight. Time, however, brought its relief, and in 1831 he married the Princess Melanie, and his third marriage was as happy as the others appear to have been. In the diary of this wife, December 31st, I read, We supped at midnight, and exchanged good wishes for the new year. May God long preserve to me my good, kind Clement, and illuminate him with his divine light. It touches me to see the pleasure it gives him to talk with me on business, and read to me what he writes such was the great austrian statesman in his private life 
a dutiful son, a loving and devoted husband, an affectionate father, a faithful servant to his emperor, a kind master to his dependents, a courteous companion, a sincere believer in the doctrines of his church, a man conscientious in the discharge of duties, and having at heart the welfare of his country as he understood it, amid innumerable perils from foreign and domestic foes. As a statesman he was vigilant, sagacious, experienced, and devoted to the interests of his imperial master. But what were Metternich's services, by which great men claimed to be judged? He could say that he was the promoter of law and order, that he kept the nation from entangling alliances with foreign powers, that he was the friend of peace and detested war except upon necessity, that he developed industrial resources and wisely regulated finances, that he secured national prosperity for forty years after desolating wars, that he never disturbed the ordinary vocations of the people or inflicted unnecessary punishments, and that he secured to Austria a proud preeminence among the nations of Europe. But this was all. Metternich did nothing for the higher interests of Germany. He kept it stagnant for forty years. He neither advanced education, nor philanthropy, nor political economy. He was the unrelenting foe of all political reforms and of all liberal ideas. What we call civilization, beyond amusements and pleasures and the ordinary routine of business, owes to him nothing. Not even codes of law or enlightened principles of government. Judged by his services to humanity, Metternich was not a great man. His highest claims to greatness were in a vigorous administration of public affairs and diplomatic ability in his treatment of foreign powers, but not in far-reaching views or aims. As a ruler, he ranks no higher than Mazarin or Walpole or Castlereagh, and far below Canning, Peel, Pitt, or Thiers. Indeed, Metternich takes his place with the tyrants of mankind, yet showing how benignant, how courteous, how interesting, and even religious and beloved a tyrant can be, which is more than can be said of Richelieu or Bismarck, the only two statesmen with whom he can be compared, all three ruling with absolute power, delegated by irresponsible and imperial masters, like Mordecai behind the throne of Xerxes, or Massinaeus at the court of Augustus. Authorities The greatest authority is the autobiography of Metternich. But Allison's history, though dull and heavy, and marked by Tory prejudices, is reliable. Fife may be read with profit in his recent history of modern Europe. Also, Mueller's political history of recent times. The annual register is often quoted by Allison. Schlosser's history of Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries is a good authority. End of section 10